for example, the FBI had a, during the time I was with the FBI, there was a, a, um, document that they put out from the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, Virginia, that says upon interviewing African-American people, understand that they're emotional but not intellectual. And what they meant by that, from that standpoint, is that we will argue, we will protest, we will get angry, but we won't stay with an issue until it comes to a logical conclusion. In other words, we won't resolve the issues. If they give us enough time to vent, then we'll kind of melt away. So they were telling FBI agents that when they went out to interview us, wherever they interviewed us, that let us go ahead and vent, let us get angry, let us get upset, and appease us in a very condescending way, and eventually the issue will become a non-issue. And that was not the profile of other communities, like the Jewish community or the Italian community or the Irish community. The FBI had to actually resolve these particular issues, because if not, they were going to continue to write letters, they were going to ask for information under the Freedom of Information Act, they were going to get attorneys, they were going to uh, continue to hound the FBI. And so those kind of issues that I don't think we understand in our community. Yo, family, welcome to Jonathan Soul. Let's get into Wednesday Rewinds. I'm going to pop in the tape. We're going to hear an interview I did back in the day here on JonathanSoul.com. Wednesday Rewinds. Let's listen. All right, family, welcome to Humor for the Soul. We got a special guest tonight, Dr. Tyrone Powers. He has a very background. He grew up in Baltimore. He wound up in law enforcement in the, in the Maryland State Police, found himself as an FBI agent, and now my understanding is he's a, he's, he's a, a professor and also a radio talk show host. Uh, disseminating his information uh, to the masses. Dr. Tyrone Powers, welcome to Human for the Soul. Well, thank you, and I'm glad to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. Uh, I first uh, met uh, Dr. Powers through his book, Eyes to My Soul, The Rise and Decline of a Black FBI Agent, back in 96. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. I heard him um, being interviewed, and uh, I ran out to my local black bookstore, bought the book, and I was amazed. I mean, not only was it hardcore in terms of its content, I mean, it wasn't a very easy childhood from, from what I remember reading, but it was poetic. It was very poetic the way you, the way you wrote it. Um, Dr. Powers, how did you kind of develop that style? Well, I, I think essentially it almost became an instinct thing to me. I, I, I've always kept meticulous notes. It was a, an, an admonition from my mother at a very young age to just um, take notes on your observations, not for the purpose of writing a book or anything, but it was something I'd already done. So I've always looked through the world through that kind of lens anyway. And then um, the, the book uh, is interesting because it came about. I had no intention of writing a book. Uh, a number of people encouraged me, including my mother and some attorney friends of mine, about putting um, my observations, thoughts, and experiences on paper. And I just wrote them in the same format, I, I guess, that I had been essentially writing in um, since my mother encouraged me to do so at an early age. Mm. So uh, you said attorneys encouraged you to write. Yeah, I had a, uh, there was a few civil rights attorneys who was familiar with um, some situations in the FBI. You know, I had testified before Congress about um, um, discrimination and issues of, of racism, not, not only externally, um, even though it was externally that the COINTELPRO operations of the 1960s continued into the 90s and even until today. 
um, and I had made those observations clear, factual. Um, uh, you know, it was firsthand information because of me being there. And secondly, I had talked to them, and, and when I spoke to them about that, um, those attorneys and other friends, I did it in the context of um, of my my experiences growing up, and they said, "Well, listen, you need to uh, connect the dots, connect the two, and, and put them on paper." And I was hesitant at first because that wasn't my purpose for um, for um, revealing that information or actually um, writing down and keeping notes on that information. Uh, but then, after some encouragement from my mother, who is uh, my major mentor, um, I went on and, and began to put it on paper. Understood, understood. Um, I remember, I read the book a couple of times, and I remember um, there was a period where you were uh, a Maryland State Trooper. Is that correct? Correct. Right, and right. You, were, you were guarding a Klan rally. That's the way I remember it. Yeah, it's an interesting, it was an interesting scenario because here I am, a, a, a young black man um, out of uh, Baltimore City, uh, a majority black city, assigned to Frederick County, which is, um, and, and Frederick County is an area where um, the Klan used to actually um, have their uh, headquarters. And so I was assigned to the Frederick Barracks of the Maryland State Police when I left, um, when I left the, uh, the, the, when I joined the State Police. And then one of the major issues they had out there is that the organization called the Jewish Defense League had made an attack on the Ku Klux Klan a few days earlier and had indicated that they were going to attack this Klan rally. And so the Klan requested from the Maryland State Police that they provide some protection under their First Amendment right to peaceably assemble on their own property, and the State Police decided to do so. And it was only me and one other black trooper assigned to that particular barrack, and for whatever reason, um, and I had my ideas about the reasons they assigned us to um, protect the Ku Klux Klan from the Jewish Defense League, which is a you know the the whole scenario is is awkward, but it's also revealing in itself. It, it doesn't sound like it was divine irony. <laughs> it sounds... No, and that, no, it wasn't divine irony. Right, it was somebody else's irony. Um, so yeah. I, I remember when you were first going to the um, the training academy for the FBI, and I think the building was like set back in the woods someplace. Right, the FBI is in Quantico, Virginia. It's on the military base back there, and um, in Quantico, Virginia, you're right in a wooded area. Mm -hmm. And so, as I was going through and, and, and reading the book, it, it kind of put me in mind of um, that movie. I'm not sure if you've seen it, The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the movie and the author who lives in Chicago, Sam Greenlee, um, who uh, who wrote the book. Wow! Right, right, right. So basically, for, for folks who haven't seen it, one. It's online, and it's, it's one of those classic, incredible movies, too. Um, he took what he learned uh, in the uh, FBI and brought it back to the community and kind of started a little revolution, so to speak. Um, Dr. Powers, it, it seems like you've taken what you've learned from the FBI, applied it in your books, and applied it also in your radio program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, a couple of things here. First of all, um, you know, I, because I believe that things happen for a reason, when I first went into the state police and the FBI, uh, my family members, mainly my brothers, were against it because they thought I was becoming a part of a very antagonistic group, a group that had been very antagonistic towards the black community, certainly during the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, and to an extent, even today. So they were resistant. Uh, they wanted me to go ahead and get a college education to be a part of the solution in the community. So it was difficult for me to make that decision in the first place to go ahead and join the FBI. But after some pushback, um, I, I decided to go ahead anyway. And, and, and in fact, 
um, in hindsight, it was probably an excellent idea because I learned so much in that agency in terms of how they deal with our community um, back then, how they deal with our community even today in terms of investigations. I understood things that I didn't understand before. Things I had read in books were made clear to me because I had first-hand information. And I decided that upon leaving the FBI, I was going to do my best to bring that information to the community so that when we became angry about issues, for example, the FBI had a, during the time I was with the FBI, there was a, a um, document that they put out from the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, Virginia, that says upon interviewing African-American people, understand that they're emotional but not intellectual. And what they meant by that from that standpoint is that we will argue, we will protest, we will get angry, but we won't stay with an issue until it comes to a logical conclusion. In other words, we won't resolve the issues. If they give us enough time to vent, then we'll kind of melt away. So they were telling FBI agents that when they went out to interview us, wherever they interviewed us, that let us go ahead and vent, let us get angry, let us get upset, and appease us in a very condescending way, and eventually the issue will become a non-issue. And that was not the profile of other communities, like the Jewish community or the Italian community or the Irish community. The FBI have actually resolved these particular issues, because if not, they were going to continue to write letters, they were going to ask for information under the Freedom of Information Act, they were going to get attorneys, they were going to uh, continue to hound the FBI. And so those kind of issues that I don't think we understand in our community, even as we mount protests, legitimate protests, or even as we address issues, I wanted to bring back to our community so that we can add some strategy to what we were doing, along with, anger is a natural emotion, but if you don't add strategy to it, then what you have is a bunch of angry people who never resolve the issues, and as we can see in many places in our community, the issues not only not get resolved, but they actually are exacerbated. Is there any truth to that profile that, that you learned uh, from the FBI? I mean, every culture has its strengths and weaknesses. I'm just, based on your experience, is there any truth to that? Yeah, I think it is to an extent, and I'll tell you why, and, and this is not a, a, a condemnation of all our organizations, but first of all, um, we, 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 we seem to be, we, we're definitely caught up in charismatic leadership, and charismatic leadership knows that. And all due respect to people like Reverend Al Sharpton and so on and so forth, what the FBI will do, will look at that and say, well, he has a radio program, and if you have a civil rights leader with a radio program addressing all these kind of issues, then what you have is a situation where he's distracted, where he can't focus. In other words, he can't bring any issue to a logical conclusion because he's all over the place. He's part entertainer, he's part civil rights leader, unlike a Dr. Martin Luther King or the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, or those people who concentrated on one area. So from that standpoint, that we have so much going on, and we're pulled in so many directions, and to an extent, so many of us want to do so much that we end up doing very little. Um, and, and so from that standpoint, I think it has some, some veracity. In other words, if, if, if we set ourselves up, if black people were to set ourselves up, up like a nation, then we would assign people who would do media, such as yourself and others. We would assign, which means you, you don't, you're not, it's not that you're not concerned with the issues, but your job would be to bring the issues to light via your media uh, expertise. And then there would be people assigned to make sure that we did the protests in a very organized and effective way where it would bring about some logical um, um, con come to a logical conclusion and come up with some logical solutions. And, they would, and then we would departmentalize ourselves like the United States of America does. You have a Department of State, a Department of Defense, Department of Education, the Department of Health. Not all of those departments try to do everything. And unfortunately, in our community, because we have so few trying to do so much, we're distracted. And so when we, an issue comes up, as soon as we have a particular person or a particular organization assigned to that issue, 
Um, and the next week, a new issue come up, and they never get a chance to bring the last issue to a logical conclusion. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a condemnation, but it is a recognition that they recognize how um, distracted we are because of the, so many issues that we have, and how we lack the organization um, and the probably the the concentration to direct ourselves to finish one issue or to have one part of our nation within a nation, complete one issue, even as another part deal with something else so that we're all not running all over the place um, like three blind mice. So what is your role in this process? What is your role? Well, right now, well, right now I think that what I've been doing and what I continue to do, um, um, sometimes on the lecture circuit, but more importantly um, in, in closed areas, I, I've actually provided information and strategies to young people across the nation. We've done a lot of gang intervention where I explained to them how groups became gangs and how that there was no win in this particular situation. So I do that. I go into the prisons to do that. Um, the radio program that I do came about because a friend of mine um, asked me to participate in that. I had a, a radio program on um, uh, Morgan State University campus, strangely enough, WEAA, where Dr. Richardson at the time was president, and the governor of the, and we were revealing so much information in a very strategic way, not angry, so on and so forth, that the governor of the state of Maryland, who is now the Governor Martin O'Malley, um, put pressure on the president at Morgan State University, and they actually revealed this to me. This is not uh, a theory. We put pressure on the president of Morgan State University where they had the radio program removed. In fact, he told Morgan State University, a historically black college university, that unless they removed the radio program, their funding would be cut. So the information we were putting out in a very strategic way had such an impact that you had people at that level get involved. And sadly, and I, and I think I can say this openly and honestly because I've had conversations with him and and certainly in the public, he even involved um, Kwasi and Fume, um, as we all know, is on the board of trustees at Morgan State University, and even he was involved in that process to have us removed. He later came back and said that um, they just got him caught up in something that he wasn't familiar with. But this is how I, I know that what my role is and what I've done, to get back to your question, can have an impact strategically explaining to people how to take that anger, that justified anger, how to take that 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 justified um, um, disdain for the way things are going now and turn it into actionable results, something that we can measure, outcomes that we can measure. How do we get young people in the inner city not just to de degrade them because they're part of a gang because Gangs are just social networks. The, the priests in the church are a gang to an extent. Police officers are a gang to an extent. But how do you get their behavior to change? Not their cohesiveness, their desire to protect one another, to ride or die. But how do you get their mission to change? Because we've been so concentrated on getting rid of gangs that we forgot the gangs are just groups with criminal activities. So if we can keep the group behavior the cohesiveness, that we are one together, that we are all for the same cause and the same mission and change the mission that they're on that allows them to be financially stable and at the same time work to change the conditions in our community, then what we do is we change the Crips and the Bloods back to the Black Panther Party for self-defense and we change them back to other groups. There's a strategy involved with that. So I think that's the role that I've been intimately involved in and I think that is my role um, you know, and I realize that it's a it's a major undertaking, and that nobody can do everything. But I think all of us have to do something. Um, how does the new book fit into this? I understand that you're working on a new a new book. 
Yeah, it's a follow-up. It's called Black Ice, and, and it's a follow-up to the first book. It, it kind of takes it to a, another level, explaining some of the things that I didn't get to reveal in the first book, but also, um, as I, we just spoke about, um, coming up with some very strategic solutions so that, first of all, people can see where we are, why we are where we are, how we got there, that it's not circumstance. It's a very, uh, um, it's a, it was a very good strategy that those who oppose our progress had and how to overcome that. And Black Ice does that. It explains um, those issues, how to see them, how to look at them, um, in the same context and written in the same way that you described earlier as, as poetic and um, as eyes to myself. Gotcha. Dr. Powers, you think it's possible maybe in a month or two I could give you a call back and we could spend some more time together maybe talking about, you know, national, regional politics? Absolutely. Any, any way in which I can help be a part of the solution, I'm more than willing to spend time doing that. And again, thank you for the opportunity and continue to do what you're doing. Yo, family, I know you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. This is Jonathan Soul speaking with you now. Then head on over to JonathanSoul.com and pick up my ebook, Malcolm Mars. Malcolm like the prophet, Mars like the planet. It's a sci fi ebook space opera talks about three brothers to take their families pack them up in a homemade starship kind of like an egg-shaped suv and they take them tomorrow to escape the violence racism the bullshit basically and they want to start a new life on the red planet it's a lot of love it's a lot of high drama it's a lot of high tech and most of all it's a lot of black pride in that novel so check it out malcolm mars support this broadcast Go over there to uh, Amazon.com and you can pick it up. Or you can go to my website, JonathanSoul.com, and it'll take you over to Amazon. Jonathan Soul, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-U-L on Twitter. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, follow me on Tumblr and Twitter. Over there, in addition to the broadcast, you'll also get my other interests. Photography, architecture, gorgeous sisters you'll see over there, and anime. I got a really uh, serious interest in anime, particularly that Ghost in the Shell slash Cowboy Bebop slash, you know what I mean, uh, Black Lagoon. You know, just kind of a, a disport, you know, high tech, a little bit of dark uh, kind of vibration. But you definitely enjoy the images over there. Listen, guys, I love you guys. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I hope all your dreams come true. Find something that you enjoy as much as I enjoy doing this podcast. And you always guarantee some happiness in your life. Love you guys. Go for our dreams.